and welcome to the fourth edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. In case you don't know, this is the podcast where we talk about all sorts of sports, society, and stuff, covering the entire gamut of things to talk about. And we have a really, really special guest, someone I'm super excited to have. I've been an acquaintance of him for quite a while. He's one of the foremost NFL insiders that you'll find who is really willing to share all the information that he has at his disposal. And it's really great to have him on. Benjamin Albright is here with us. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really, uh, really appreciate it. Definitely. So do you want to quickly introduce yourself, sort of your background and what you're doing now? Uh, yeah, um, my, I guess I don't really know where to start, but, uh, I, you know, I have a background in football, whether that's, uh, whether that's in coaching or scouting, uh, I have picked up a, a check or two from the league in terms of, you know, independent consulting and stuff like that. Nothing, I was never a full-time on a payroll or anything. Um, you know, I worked, uh, I worked a little bit at the University of Arkansas. I have a little bit of allegiance there, I guess. That kind of filters out at times on my Twitter. Uh, you can probably tell my voice got a little twang of, and I grew up in the South. Um, spent uh, 15 years in the United States Army Reserve. Did uh, did three tours overseas. Um, uh, I guess that's the that's the gist of it. Nowadays, I work as uh, I, I started off in writing, and now I work in uh, uh, sports talk radio here in in Denver, uh, of all places. Never thought I'd end up here, but somehow I did. And um, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying it. And we're going to touch on all aspects of what you just discussed, but we're going to start with the Denver Broncos, one of the most interesting teams in the league this year, the entire dynamic there with Peyton Manning losing his job to the young gun, Brock Osweiler. What are your thoughts about this proceedings? Is this something that you expected? Uh, yeah, I wasn't as necessarily high on Osweiler as, uh, as some people here locally, but we knew this was going to happen. We knew this transition was going to happen. Brock Osweiler was hand-picked by John Elway, uh, you know, to be the guy. Uh, he brought Peyton in, and at the time, you know, it was kind of an uncertainty. It was a coin flip. Nobody knew what Peyton Manning was going to be coming off of uh, the neck surgeries and the injuries uh, in Indianapolis. So so it was kind of a gamble with Peyton Manning at the time. So, you know, Elway hedged his bet by drafting a quarterback, Brock Osweiler, who was his son's roommate in college. So there's a family connection there as well. Uh, and he was kind of hand-picked to be the guy. So we knew this was going to happen. We knew this transition was going to happen. Um, you know, this offseason is something I reported. The Broncos explored, uh, you know, and they got into some preliminary talks with Houston Texans about trade manning. Um, you know, the organization has denied that, but the Texans organization confirmed to CBS Houston that that didn't happen. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where the transition, once Kubiak was brought on board to replace Fox, uh, the Osweiler transition was only a matter of time. Uh, it's one that Elway's been stumping for. Uh, I'm not going to say that he and Manning are on bad terms because that's simply not true, but that relationship has maybe tailed off a little bit over the last couple of years since uh, they've been unable to get back to the Super Bowl to win it. Definitely could see that, and I'm sure the Texans are regretting a little bit not ponying up to get Peyton Manning. Might even have them further out in that weak AFC South division. And there was another rumor that was also circulating recently that the Broncos were trying to trade Osweiler as well and were actually looking for a six-round pick in return. Can you confirm or deny the veracity of that rumor? Because that really seems unlikely given how he's playing and how highly regarded he seems to be in Denver. 
Um, let me say it this way. I would never rule anything out, but at the same time, I would find that to be highly unlikely and have not heard anything to support that ever. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not necessarily true, but uh, I certainly have zero information on that and have never heard a whisper about that. Uh, and I can't believe that Elway would trade away the guy he handpicked. And, he, you know, the guy who, who uh, the first two years, you know, lived in a guest house. So I, I, I find that difficult to believe. When the Broncos hired Gary Kubiak this offseason, was that a sign of Peyton's time coming up since Kubiak runs more of a under-center offense, Peyton traditionally a shotgun quarterback? Were there any rumblings from Denver at the time when Kubiak was hired that Peyton felt a little bit slighted? Um, yeah, there were whispers and rumors of that and where he fit in and things like that. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Peyton's, basically run the same offense his entire time in the NFL, a variance to Tom Moore offense, whether Bruce Arians was in there doing it, Jim Caldwell, Tom Moore, whomever, uh, you know, or Adam Gates. It was all some variant of that, and it's all it's, it's all uh, a levels concept offense, uh, big routes, things like that. And for those, you know, for the listener who doesn't really know what that means, it's, it's, inward, it's basically inward-breaking routes. Uh, it narrows the quarterback's field of vision, so you only have to stare down the center of the field because everything's breaking in. Uh, so you don't have to move your head around a lot. You have a, a clear focus on the middle of the field and are able to deliver the ball to different levels of the field, whether that's short, medium, or long, uh, in an effort to, to kind of ease things on the quarterback. It's a highly successful offense. You see it in the contest of it in Arizona right now as well, and they're the only team in the NFL that has more touchdowns and punts uh, in the NFL right now. So it's a very successful offense when you have a quarterback that can execute it. All right, so given Peyton's situation right now, the Broncos seem to be a team that is poised to contend for a few more years and then potentially also poised to rebuild around Osweiler. What do you think about how the Broncos will treat the next offseason? Uh, well, I, I think they're a team financially that's set up to compete in perpetuity. Um, you look at you know where they are in terms of cap space and where they will be, uh, you know, if they jettison Manning in the offseason, of course, you're going to see the cap go up about $10, 12000000 million uh, this offseason. You jettison Manning up another $16 million. You let Ryan Clady, who's been injured a lot, and Harvey Slade go. Uh, that's another $8 million. Evan Mathis comes off. That's $4 million. Uh, there's plenty of money. You know, there's guys that they need to resign. There's a lot of guys they need to resign. You look at Vaughn Miller uh, being the, probably the, the, the top name on that list. But uh, Derek Wolf, Malik Jackson, guys like that, whether or not they sign the running backs, uh, I don't know. I probably wouldn't, at least not the big money deals. But, um, you know, this is a team that's, that's financially actually in a really good shape. It doesn't look like it at, at first glance, but when you delve into what the contracts are coming off the books and what they're going to need, uh, you know, to pay out, and then the fact that L.A. has, uh, you know, has, has worked in the front office for an arena football team and then, you know, been a businessman with uh, with the car dealerships, he knows how to pinch a penny. Yeah, the guy got Chris Harris for probably, what, 60% of market relative to his ability, uh, an absurdly cheap deal uh, that he signed Chris Harris to. So, you know, I, I don't think that uh, – I, I think that Elway's a shrewd negotiator. He just has to be careful not to be viewed as cheap uh, in an effort to lure in free agents that he may want to bring in. And then also the NFL draft, of course, is another way that teams rebuild and add more talent. It's a long way off, but what position do you think that they could target in the draft this year? Uh, I think they're going to go heavily after the offensive line. Uh, I think they're going to look at running backs. They'll probably look at a quarterback. Uh, and then you're probably also looking at some safety help as well. They've had a lot of injuries to those safeties this year. T.J. Ward is basically uh, a, a downhill-only safety. 
um, Bruton and Stewart have been pretty good, but uh, shaky health. And, and then Josh Bush and Shiloh Keogh are just roster guys that are only here to fill in because uh, uh, because of injuries. So you talked about some of the more injury-prone or maybe slightly disappointing Broncos this year. Who have been your offensive and defensive MVPs for the Broncos this year? I would say the offensive MVP has to be Emmanuel Sanders. Uh, you know, I got into a little bit of a tip this offseason with a couple of guys on Twitter when I said he was the best Broncos receiver on this team. But anybody who watches the Broncos regularly would tell you that's the truth. Uh, while Demarius may be the, you know, the bigger, uh, has the size and be the sexier name, Emmanuel is, uh, is the more complete receiver. Demarius is a four-round receiver. That's it. And he plays soft sometimes. He can get in his head and he'll play soft. A, a good case in point on that is uh, the Indy playoff game last year. This guy just gave up on his blocks, gave up on routes. Uh, we watched a few games ago where he had 13 targets in a game and only caught one ball uh, against New England. So, uh, you know, he's a guy who plays soft at times. He just, you know, he, he says he wants to be a leader, but then when it comes time to show up and be a leader uh, on the field, you know, he, he's, just, he's just not all there. So, He's a four-out guy who's got a lot of athleticism and a world of talent, and I hope that that talent someday meets, uh, the, you know, meets the mental ability and, and he becomes the, the great player he could be. But in the interim, Emmanuel Sanders, definitely the, uh, the, the offensive MVP. The guy is just, he's just nails on third down. You, he's the guy you're going after. When If Vernon Davis or Owen Daniels or Demarius are dropping footballs, he's still sure-handed. Uh, you look at the Pittsburgh game last week. Yeah, he just shows up week after week. So he's the guy. Uh, we've not heard. On the defensive side of the football, uh, you know, Vaughn's been pretty good. Um, I would say he's probably the MVP, although Brandon Marshall probably deserves it more. Brandon may not have the eye-popping numbers, but one of the best coverage middle or inside linebackers in the NFL, uh, unheralded, and uh, he's just fantastic. The team does not play well when he has to come off the field. Uh, so I would say he's secretly the MVP, although the box score might suggest that Vaughn should be. Two very good names to call out. You mentioned Vernon Davis. And he's someone who, it just seems like he doesn't want to play football anymore. Do you sort of get that vibe from what you're hearing in Denver? Because I know in San Francisco, it just sounded like he was done. Yeah, it, it, I think it's more he wants to collect a check but doesn't want to do what it takes to earn that check. And I hate to say that about anybody because that's that's just such a terrible thing to say. You guys are out there playing professional football, and uh, you know we on the sidelines here don't have any idea the, the physical toll that takes on the body, but uh, it's the guy who just doesn't. I mean, unless it's an easy, surefire catch where he can step out of bounds, he's just not putting the effort in. Uh, he's not. He's not putting the effort in to make stuff over the middle uh, and that kind of stuff. And he was brought in to do that. I, when this, when the trade happened, I was like, well, this is a can't lose situation for the Broncos. You're giving up a, you know, you're giving up a few spots in the draft and one of their six round picks to get Vernon Davis. But I, I'm going to be honest with you, he's been a major disappointment, and uh, and both teams may have lost in that deal. Well, I think the Niners gave up on the season before it started, but. Definitely agree that both teams might have lost in that deal. So moving on from the pros, we're going to go to college. We're going to talk about the draft. You have a bit of a reputation as a quarterback guru. You are very good at seeing the professional traits that translate and knowing which players to watch. In this class, who really jumps out to you as first-round caliber quarterback prospects? Uh, there really isn't there really isn't much that I would consider uh, franchise caliber talent in this class. Uh, and I let me back up a little bit. I always hate that term guru. I, I, it's I don't know. I, I feel like I uh, that that shouldn't be applied to me. I try to I try to do my best to find these guys out. And you know sometimes I hit, sometimes I don't. Um, you know I've got some pretty notable misses. If you look at Brian Brom or Tyler Wilson or a, 
you know, a guy I was really behind in Brett Smith, I thought could be the next, next Jeff Garcia. But, you know, I played the position, and, and a lot of guys you find on social media didn't. So I think that that's, that's probably the difference, you know, is that I kind of know a little bit about the position because it's the position I played. So uh, it's a little easier for me, I guess, maybe to identify some of those traits. But um, as far as this draft goes, you know, I, I think Paxton Lynch is probably the, the cream of the, uh, the crop uh, in terms of draft eligible. Um, you know, a guy that's got the size, got the arm, got a little bit more mobility than you give him credit for. Um, you know, he played against a little bit of a lower level of competition, but, uh, you know, I think that he's a guy that could excel in the right situation. I think he's another guy that's a perfect setup for that, uh, uh, that levels concept offense that we were talking about earlier that Manning plays in, Carson Palmer plays in, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that caters to his, to his strengths and abilities. And, you know, I think he's probably uh, a one-year project, meaning it's going to take him a full season to really get ramped up rather than a, uh, a day-one starter type guy. Uh, you know, other than that, you got people like uh, people like Jared Goff. I'm not a big fan of Jared Goff. I think he's uh, a skinny-framed, air-raid quarterback. He's got small hands. Uh, he's a thin guy. He's not going to be able to put on a lot of weight, so I don't know if he can take the pounding. Uh, and then you look at, you know, what he brings to the table, right? You know, he's got an adequate arm, but it's certainly not what I would call a good one or a plus arm. Um, you know, he's fairly accurate, which which is good. But, again, he plays in an air raid offense, which is all, you know, timing, all timing routes. Um, it's so difficult to translate. You know, you tell me what air raid quarterback has succeeded in the NFL, and I'll uh, I'll hang up and listen. But there, there are other aspects of it, too. Uh, this is a guy, Goff, who does not make his own line protection calls, and that's big. I don't think people realize how much coaches are looking for that now. You get so many of these uh, these up-tempo, spread, air-raid offenses that just don't make their own protection or line calls, uh, and it really they struggle to diagnose in the NFL. Um, you know, Bryce Petty is notorious for uh, an interview that he had with the Wall Street Journal uh, before the season started where he got into Rook's camp and he, struck, he couldn't identify the Mike linebacker, couldn't identify the Mike. And, and people aren't taught to do that anymore. The reasons because of the tempo or crowdsourced, everything's so sped up that the quarterback's just basically playing a point guard. You know, the center of the guard makes the line of protection calls. The quarterback's just quickly trying to identify what he reads out there and, and you know, throw an option route or a prepackaged route. And that's it. And it really has kind of dumbed down the game in a sense. I get that it's exciting for some people. There's tempo. There's more points. And it's, it's a little bit different. But the flip side of that is, is uh, you know, quarterbacks coming into the NFL unprepared to play the game. And Goff comes out of that same system. Sonny Dykes runs an air raid. It's an air raid variant. And, you know, he's also a guy that's only won about a third of his starts. Um, you know, and, and I know we go back and forth on the quarterback win thing and all that, but uh, transcendent quarterback talent should help his team win more. Uh, in the NFL right now, there's one quarterback who, uh, who lost more games than he won starting in college, and that's Jay Cutler. And I hardly call him the epitome of success. So. Um, uh, another guy I'm high on, Carson Wentz, out of North Dakota State. I think he's got all the tools, but, again, you're looking at another one- and maybe two-year project. Um, Tom Cook out of Michigan State, people are, are pretty high on. He's a guy that's got a little bit of talent, but he's got a lot of off-field that, uh, that's kind of sketchy, and the intangibles just really aren't there. I think he's just a guy, probably a career number two with maybe some spot startability. I think, uh, I think like Matt Moore type uh, quarterback in, in terms of what he brings to the table. So I really don't see a lot of franchise stuff in this draft. You have a lot of projects after that if you want to go with uh, Trayvon Boykin or Jacoby Brissett or, you know, any of those guys. Those are all project guys that come out of uh, various different offenses that are going to need a learning curve to succeed if, indeed, they stay quarterbacks in the NFL. I would tend to agree with pretty much everything that you said. This Connor Cook off-field stuff is weird, but we can address that at a later time. I don't need to get too deep into it at this podcast. 
so you said that this class is not the strongest class overall. Throughout college football, any year, any grade, who are the quarterbacks that really have jumped out to you as being on that track to become potentially elite prospects? Oh, goodness. Um, well, you know, the kid down at Florida looked all right before he got popped for steroids, uh, Will Greer. Uh, you know, I was kind of enjoying watching him. McElwain uses a lot of pro concepts in that offense. Um, so I was, I was definitely kind of enjoying that. Uh, you know, looking around the, uh, looking around the league, yet that, uh, a kid over at Texas A&M looks, uh, uh, looks like he might have something. Um, UCLA's got a quarterback, looks pretty good right now. Uh, shoot, trying to run through the, uh, run the gamut here, <laughs> uh, of guys. Um, you know, those are the ones that jump out at me off the off the top of my head. I don't really care for any of the guys down there at Florida State right now. Jimbo's usually a pipeline of the NFL. Um, oh, goodness. Um, those are the ones that jump out at me right now off the top of my head. I'm sure there are others, but that's all I think of at the moment. Yeah, a couple of others who jumped out when I was watching this year. One might be a little bit controversial, but I know at Oklahoma State they have two quarterbacks, and uh-huh. I was a fan of both of them, to be honest. I actually liked Rudolph a lot when I was watching him before this year because I think he has a really good arm. And Oklahoma State really hadn't got around to uh, to watching a lot of Oklahoma State this year, so I can't really comment on on, on that. But uh, a name I did leave off a minute ago, Baker Mayfield out of Oklahoma, that might be the first air raid guy to succeed in the NFL. Uh, he's got he's got it. You know, he's got that it that every time he's got it. Um, that's a kid I really want to see more on. So Baker Mayfield, good name I throw out there. I liked him too. I was surprised by how much I liked him. Another quarterback, though, who I'm going to be intrigued to see how he reacts to the coaching changes down there is Brad Kaya at Miami. Because as a freshman, he really seemed to improve throughout the season. I saw his first game against Louisville, and I hated him. I thought he was awful. And then as the year went on, he got better and better and better, and I became a little bit more bullish on him. I think this year, if I recall correctly, he took a bit of a step back. I'm hoping that with Al Golden gone, he can take a step forward next year. So he's definitely one who I like. So, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of those quarterbacks. Those are definitely some good names to keep an eye on. I don't think anyone's as strong as Jameis or Mariota. Both of them were head and shoulders above the rest. So we talked about how a lot of these quarterbacks don't understand pro-style concepts of reading defenses, calling out the mic, which really should be a basic concept. Do you think that it's a kill factor for a prospect who may be extremely physically gifted to come to the NFL and have to make those calls? Or do you think that with coaches like Chip Kelly, who albeit has been inconsistent, but that offense has put up points on occasion, do you think it sometimes a little bit more incumbent on the coordinator to, if they get a guy like that, make it easier on him. Is that a way to win in the NFL? Well, personally, I think it's a combination of both, but the NFL would say it's incumbent on the player. Um, you know, you look at these guys who haven't had to do that, haven't had to have those things. That, that really the only successful one is Cam Newton. Uh, Cam Newton didn't make his own line calls at Auburn uh, in, in the Malagon offense. It was a little, you know, non-traditional offense. And, He's really been the, the, the crown jewel of success as far as that goes. And I think a lot of that is because his physical gifts are so undeniable that he was able to overcome that. He was a guy I wasn't as sold on coming out. I, you know, I undersold on him because of those things. And, you know, it caused me to miss on, on, on Cam, what I consider a miss anyway. 
uh, in terms of the evaluation. So I think unless you have elite traits and size coming out, it's going to be very difficult for you, um, you know, to pull off that transition without some kind of incredible learning curve. And we're going to end the sports section with this final question. You may not like being called a guru, but you do tend to know about some of these lower-level quarterbacks, guys like Chris Bonner, Dustin Vaughn from the past. Are there any in this year's class who you really like? Well, there's one I, I actually really, really like uh, out of Ferris State. It's uh, Vanderland. Uh, the problem is, is he's probably not a quarterback at the NFL. He's probably a fullback. Um, but he's a guy I really like as a competitor, a lot of heart, runs with the football, you know, kind of a poor man's Tebow thing going on, got great size. I just don't think he's an NFL quarterback uh, without significant uh, significant work on his mechanics and throwing, but uh, he could probably start at fullback in the NFL right away for a team that still employs that. I watched him. I actually liked him. So you named someone who I watched. It makes me really happy. One other quarterback I wanted to touch on, though, who I personally don't like, I just want to get your opinion on him and, and kill him off in case other people talk about him. I know there's a couple of trolls on Twitter who really seem to like him for some reason. John Robertson from Villanova, not good, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I look, Robertson is a fine college quarterback, uh, and there's nothing wrong with being a good college quarterback. I just don't see a guy that translates to a successful starting NFL quarterback, and that's that's probably the best way I can put that. I, I like the kid. There's nothing wrong with him. I just don't see somebody that I'm hitching my franchise to in the NFL. Perfect. So we're going to end on that note and move on to the society portion of this podcast. So you mentioned that you were in the Army Reserves. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on what inspired you to join that unit and what your experiences were there? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of people have some misconceptions about that kind of stuff. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, people join for the, the quote-unquote college money or, or those types of things. I never uh, needed any of that. I had academic scholarships that completely covered uh, college and then some. It was never about the money. Um, when I was a junior in high school, uh, well, when I was a sophomore in high school, I read uh, uh, I read a book called Starship Troopers. It was made into an absolutely terrible movie. Um and there's a concept in that Robert Heinlein book that in order to contribute to the society, you need to be invested in it. Uh, so the concept of becoming a, a citizen in that book meant that you had to perform some kind of civil service to do that. And it's a concept that really resonated with me. It's something that I, I personally believe in. Uh, I, I feel like that America, the United States as a whole, where we live, would be a lot better off if everyone were invested in it. You know, a lot of people like to grouse about the government or the process, but they've never been involved in it, so they don't really understand it. They don't understand the whys of why things are done the way they are. And I feel like if they invested themselves in some sort of civil service, whether that was the armed forces or something as simple as working for the post office, and I don't mean to belittle postal employees, but I mean it's less ostensibly less dangerous than, than armed service, um, that I, I feel like they would be more invested in, and we would have not only better turnout, but better informed, uh, you know, voting and better informed citizenry. And I think that that's a good thing. So that's what caused me or inspired me to do it was the belief that um, everyone should have to do some form of civil service to be vested in their in their country. I totally agree on the more informed citizenry part. I think that that is something that often falls through the cracks nowadays. In, in my opinion. There should be some sort of formal civics training in high school in order to have a better understanding of how politics work, how 
the entire system in America works. Being from the military, having this perspective, when you see a current event happen, some sort of national or international issue come up, and you talk about it with your friends who do not have that military background, who are civilians, how do you notice that your perspectives differ? Um, I, you know, as much as I hate to say this, because it's going to sound a little arrogant, I, I feel like in a lot of cases, not all, but I feel like in a lot of cases, my opinion is better informed because in, in most cases, I've actually been to those places that we talk about. You know, I've met people from there. And so my opinion is, uh, is given through the prism of knowing citizens of that country, knowing their perspective and their outlook, and hopefully that's better informed my own. Uh, versus somebody who just flips on the TV, gets their, you know, gets their sourcing or their uh, their perspective from television, which is a very, very framed uh, perspective. I won't say slanted necessarily, because some some news outlets do a very good job with that. But uh, we've become uh, our news has become less news and more punditry, uh, quick sound bites and punditry, and so people get their information viewed through that prism and it's not it's not beneficial it doesn't better inform them as a whole they get somebody's opinion on what happened and they base their opinion on that and it becomes this this ill-informed concept of uh, this ill-informed constructed worldview and it's it's i don't think it's healthy i totally believe that the punditry on television in a lot of ways it's just a play for ratings and it doesn't better inform the populace I mean, you saw with CNN with the entire plane incident, they pretty much just ran the same story for days and days on end just because it was going to drop ratings and cement CNN as the leaders in this particular asinine category of news. News directors these days look for water cooler talk or what was called water cooler talk in the 90s when Seinfeld was on. But that's what they do. They look for stories that will generate buzz there, and then they sit there and they beat them to death with all kinds of ridiculous ridiculous angles and uh, it's not it's not news it's it's entertainment or infotainment as it were and part of it also is that an on-air anchor has a very different skill set than a reporter and i don't think that that difference is delineated very often when you're looking at culture in general an on-air anchor's job is to present something in such a way that it makes it appealing to hear. And of course, they need to be intelligent, they can't be stupid, but their job isn't to necessarily be experts or look for some deep, probing fact. They're not reporters, they're not the ones on the ground, they're not the ones aggregating all the news, researching everything, and I don't think that people necessarily distinguish between the two of them enough when you look at who we're complaining about the news. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, if, if the news as a presentation were a Christmas present, um, you know, the, the, the anchor would be the wrapping paper, not the gift. Perfect metaphor. So moving on from your time in the military to now, how do you think the military has been treated over time? Do you think that they're better treated now than they were back when you were serving or right after you were serving? Or do you think the paradigm sort of shifted a bit there? Oh, I think it's, um, as a whole, probably, hopefully, you know, uh, very similar. Uh, there were good and bad. Um, you know, a lot of people split their opinion on the military along uh, these 
he's totally, and I'm going to get off on a tangent here for a minute, these fake left-right paradigms that everybody runs with, uh, whether you're a quote-unquote liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, left-right, whatever, which which are totally, which are, uh, I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast, but they're BS, uh, they're BS constructs. Uh, say what one you against want. the other in an effort to want. drive up and drive a narrative and drive ratings. Um, you have to have, you know, you have to have somebody to fight against in order to put a, you know, to put a narrative up there that you're going to rail against. So, um, so a lot of people's opinion on the military split along those that that, that false dichotomy. Uh, and you had, you know, the people that were identified as uh, Republicans or right wingers or conservatives that were very quote unquote troop supportive, and people on the left that were calling it, uh, you know, baby killers and stuff like that. And those are extreme examples. Don't get me wrong; there were plenty of people on both sides that were just fine. But uh, I, I tend to notice that that's the opinion split along that. Uh, when I came back off my first tour, I went to. Uh, uh, a friend of mine was having a, a, a rally for a presidential candidate at the time for the uh, running for the Democratic nomination. Uh, a guy named Dennis Kucinich, not a guy I supported necessarily, but I went to you know I went to go see it because it was a presidential candidate. I like to meet them when I can. Um, and when they found out I was in the military, it, 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 it was weird just the vehemence with which these people had suddenly had some type of hatred for me, like I had done something evil. Uh, and I, I just didn't understand that. I, I, you know, I served my country. My country asked me to go do something, and uh, my obligation, because I had signed a contract and sworn an oath, was to go execute that and do that to the best of my ability. And were there moral and ethical quandaries while I was there? Absolutely. Um, you know, there, there absolutely are, and, and probably way too many to get into here. But um, that doesn't mean that the person isn't a good person. You know, and it got me to thinking about and and, and looking into. Um, you know, armies that have lost wars, and and how many you know we, we identified Nazis as bad, and the concept of Nazism and what was done by them was terrible. How many good people though fought in that fought in that military to answer the call that their country had brought up and things like that? So it got me to thinking about things like that, and uh, I, I realize I've gone way off on a tangent here, and I apologize. But uh, uh, the, the larger point was that people were. Um, People are people, and how they react to military service is always interesting to me, whether it be positively or negative. I totally understand where you're coming from. I do think from my outsider perspective, a little bit less learned perspective, that over time the blame has shifted from the troops to the politicians with a lot of these conflicts, where if someone opposes the war – they're opposing it from more of a political standpoint rather than opposing people who are actually fighting the war. I do agree with you, though, that I don't think people necessarily value that lives are in the balance. Anytime somebody goes overseas to fight, they're risking their life to ensure that America is being kept free. And while, in my opinion, and from what I've seen, I don't think many people are anti-troop, regardless of this, whether they support the war or not, I do think that sometimes that gets taken for granted. And that's something that hopefully I'm trying to get better at, and hopefully more people are trying to get better at recognizing as well. Right, and I, I think that's true. I think that as time has gone on, people are able now to more clearly parse the difference between uh, you know, conceptually going to war, something was dreamed up by a handful of, uh, of politicians and leaders, to you know the people that were executing that action and doing the best they could to try to make lives better for Americans, for Iraqis, and people around the world. I mean that that's our that was our aim as troops. We just wanted to make everybody safer. It wasn't you know a pro-America thing. It was like you know Saddam, regardless of how you feel about the invasion of Iraq, uh, and, and setting aside my personal beliefs on it, um, the re- 
reality is Saddam Hussein was a very cruel, cruel human being. And the Iraqis were very glad that we got rid of him. Now, they were angry that we stuck around afterwards and that we gave no bid contracts to U.S. contractors to repair their country, uh, putting them out of work, sitting at home and starving. But, um, you know, they were happy we got rid of Saddam. Definitely going to no comment on that. Just because <laughs> gonna keep it gonna keep it one hundred and keep it nice and clear. Because honestly, I don't think that I'm educated enough in that policy to really have a strong opinion. I will say that looking at the events, whether they may have been exacerbated a bit or not, right after Saddam fell and people were pulling down the statue, I mean it was clear that at least a large subsection of Iraqis were happy with that. But that's in the past, and we're talking about the present now, and more specifically, after you returned from your time in the military and became a private citizen again, what was the biggest culture shock that you had? Oh, man, uh, it was rough. Uh, there was a lot of things. There was, uh, and, you know, I don't want to sit here and, um, uh, you know, it, there was an article written by a magazine called Mother Jones about me after returning uh, that detailed a lot of that stuff. Um, I, you know, it, it was tough it, just adjusting. I was gone for a year and a half, uh, immersed in military culture as a young 20-something, and um, it, it was it was different coming back. I, it took me a little while to re reassimilate, readjust. I don't, you know, people talk about PTSD or anything like that. I might have had some lingering, mild PTSD. The main thing was, you know, struggling with some of those ethical, moral quandaries that I, I hinted at earlier. And, you know, I kind of, uh, uh, I, I drank too much. Um, you know, I spent my nights places I shouldn't have, uh, you know, uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I had a period there of about, seven or eight months where I, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't find the bottom of a bottle fast enough. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was unhealthy. And uh, I, I kind of snapped out of that, I guess, after about seven or eight months. That's great. And I know that we all have our own demons that we have struggled with or will struggle with. So I think a lot of people will appreciate your, and I thank you for your honesty talking about that. And we're going to make it a little bit more fun now as we sort of end the Military segment, I have a couple of other societal questions as well, but I don't know. Are you a big fan of Serial? Have you listened to it at all? I don't know if you know of the case that's happening this season of Serial, the Bo Bergdahl case. I'm, uh, I have, I've not listened to Serial. Um, it is on my to-do list. Bo Bergdahl I'm very familiar with, so uh, we, can, we can speak about that. I, I know people that were stationed with him, and I'm very familiar with that. I mean, quickly, to be honest – I need to catch up on Serial. I have heard the first episode, and I know some of Bo Bergdahl's story. For those who don't know, he was fighting overseas. He left his troop. He claims to shed light on issues that were happening by the leaders within his troop. He wanted to create a Dust One, which I guess means, and I think you could probably speak more about this, but it means that everyone would be looking for him because he would have left his base. Uh, he ended up getting captured by the Taliban, and then there was a question of, since he was a deserter, after President Obama brought him back, whether or not he may have been sympathetic to the Taliban, or was leaving to join them, or whether, as he claims, he was trying to create this chaos. Either way, it's a very complex story. I guess that my big question for you, since you are sort of in his situation to a degree, is do you understand the mindset that 
could have led him to want to create a situation where he caused this much chaos? Or, alternatively, are you of the opinion that he was just a troublemaker who really did harbor anti-American views? Well, um, you know, like any good story, there's three sides to it, his, hers, and the truth. Um, I, I tend to think that, you know, he falls somewhere in the middle. I tend to think that he's somebody who had some, who was struggling to come to grips with certain aspects of the deployment. I don't think that he was necessarily a deliberate troublemaker, uh, other than he got pushed to a point where he simply couldn't cope with, uh, with the homeostasis as it existed. So, you know, he had to find, uh, he had to find a place where, where he could. Uh, there were people that, that I know that were stationed with him. Yes, he definitely deserted um, and, and walked off. I, I don't think that he's a Taliban sympathizer. I don't think anything like that. I think he's a guy who just uh, got in over his head in the military and is probably you know best served somewhere else. Um, whether or not there are mental issues and things like that, that's that's up for somebody you know better than me to decide and, and look into. I think that he's probably just a guy who uh, you know got into a situation and realized that he's just not cut out for. Uh, the intricacies of war, um, the philosophical aspects of it, you know, and, and I think that he recognized that. I think he recognized that he wanted to be a peaceful person and didn't, didn't have a way to express that. Um, I don't believe personally that he holds any Taliban sympathies or anything like that. I think that his goal was to go out and learn more, honestly. I think that everything you hear now is some kind of spin to help save them because the UCMJ, uh, you know, has some pretty direct and pretty harsh punishments for this. But Anyway, you hear now is a little bit spin. I think reality is probably closer to a guy who just just wanted to learn more, just wanted to be peaceful, wanted to bridge the gap between you know two two warring parties and things like that. I you know I, again, I don't think he's entirely altruistic, but I think that there were in, that intent was maybe altruistic. Um, so so that's the thing, and I, I don't think that I, I think the death penalty for desertion and, and trying to file us under treason are, are absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, this is a guy we should you know we should we should try to understand what it is that's going on here, whether it be, you know, uh, whether it be his view or whatever, try to understand each other better and, and try to look into this. I understand that, you know, you have to have harsh penalties in place to keep people from, uh, you know, deserting, but the reality is their own moral code should keep cowardice away. And that's what desertion generally falls under is a cowardice. It's considered a cowardice anyway. So uh, I, I don't think that, you know, we need to be, Looking at this as a, as a death penalty situation, that kind of stuff. What what harm can Bo Bergdahl do us, really? Yeah, I think a lot of the death penalty freakout comes around again. Red team versus blue team. We just want to make Obama look bad, but neither here nor there. I guess we'll have to see how the case unfurls. So moving on a little bit, you mentioned politics before, and I would say that you have one of the more independent worldviews of people who I know in terms of who you support, what policies you support. So generally, I would ask, what perspectives matter to you politically? What are you looking for in someone that you would want to represent you? Um, I'm looking for somebody who has an overall, I consider myself a humanist, um, a specious Maybe um, you know the, the, uh, a, a little bit of a libertarian, um, but and that's that's where I would consider myself. Socially, I tend to fall along permissive lines. Fiscally, I tend to fall along conservative lines. Um, I'm looking for somebody who is going to try to put the best interests of people at heart. Um, you know, whether it's what, what's 
in the best interest of, of us as a species, uh, as us as a country, us as a county, us as a state, whatever level the official is uh, uh, running for office on. And, and I want him to be able to do that and be budget conscious. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we need to have a social safety net to catch the lowest among us out there. Sometimes we need to have incentives to incentivize production out of those people so they don't become dependent on that. So I, I think that's the, the, the thing that's lost today. You know, you look at uh, a thing like welfare, and I think welfare is a necessity and can be a good thing. On the flip side of that, welfare in the 1930s was considered something embarrassing that people would, uh, you know, would only do as a last resort and then try to pay back. You know, they would pay it back. You look at the movie um, Cinderella Man, uh, Russell Crowe, uh, movie, fantastic movie by Ron Howard, and that's one of the things. He, the first thing he did uh, when he won the boxing match was go pay back the money that he had borrowed. And nobody anymore has that. Everybody has the same attitude of I'm going to get what's mine. Uh, and so and until we either remedy that mindset or you know fix the way that we address those type of things, um, we're going to have problems. Everybody's out to get what's free and what's theirs, and everybody feels entitled to something. And uh, we've kind of lost the concept of why these social safety nets exist, you know, rather than try to get by on them, uh, you know, using them properly the way they should have been used. People try to get by on them and assist on them, and I don't like that. And so I'm looking for somebody who's oh, uh, socially, uh, you know, trying to help everybody just get along, you know, and then I'm looking for somebody fiscally who's trying to do it on a – who can balance the budget, somebody who can uh, – uh, who can rein in spending on on things that aren't working and make those tough decisions? Somebody who, uh, um, if we have another 9/11, is going to rise to the challenge of leadership there. Those types of things. And you know, looking around the political landscape right now, I see very few instances of that. And most instances that I find of that are minority candidates, in the sense that, and not like an actual minority, but in the sense that they can't get a plurality of the vote uh, because they get marginalized. So uh, any of the the, the people that are running in the front four right now, the top few from either party are, uh, are, are, are Trump, Cruz, Clinton, and Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders is an honest guy. I don't agree with his fiscal policies. And the other three, I think, are windbags that, that want to get elected, and I don't trust any of them as far as I control them. Uh, Trump especially. Trump, Donald Trump's greatest asset is that Donald Trump is great at branding Donald Trump, and you only need to look at the polls to see evidence of that. I will say that one of – the things that President Obama promised when he was running for office that I was very disappointed didn't end up coming to be was he said that he wanted to make a mandatory year-long civil service program for every American college student. And I really think that that would have gone a long way to inspiring a little bit more self-responsibility and giving everyone an honest shot at learning that. I definitely agree with you in terms of cutting ancillary spending. I think the tough part is figuring out where that spending comes from. I mean, overall, to me, my big political issues, I think campaign finance reform needs to change before anything else happens, because as you said, that just completely marginalizes the candidates who may actually have something interesting to say, and it just lets more money get fed into the quote-unquote windbags who are able to raise all the money. So I totally agree with you there. Now, just to end off this segment... This is going to be an interesting answer for me. Which figure in American history do you look up to the most? Oh, man. Um, that is a really, really good question. Oof. Uh, there are so many. Um, you know, one of my degrees is in is in history. Um, and there's just, I couldn't narrow it down to just one. Um, 
Madison and Monroe, I think, are probably the most undervalued of the founding fathers when you look at what they did. Adams and Jefferson, um, you know, Washington was a great leader, but in terms of uh, in terms of looking up to what he did in, in, in founding this, I, I find him to be uh, one of the lessers. You know, he brought a gravitas and he was a great leader, but uh, overall, in terms of policy and, and building the nation, Jefferson, Adams, Monroe, Madison would probably be my big four there. Uh, Lincoln's an obvious answer. Um, although I don't think a lot of people realize that he did what he did, um, you know, out of necessity rather than maybe his ideology in some cases. Uh, he's become a little more glorified. Uh, you know, FDR, another guy opposite side of the, the political aisle, a guy who introduced concepts and, and programs that needed to be introduced at the time. Some of them have outlived their usefulness. Some of them are still very useful. Um, you know, you move along. Uh, any of the great reformers, really, you can look at, uh, you can look at Dr. King. Um, that's a person I, I really admire. And more, more than just his civil rights stuff, if you start getting into reading some of his works and stuff like that, very intelligent man who had a lot of nice things to say, uh, good things to say. They got lost in the wash because of the civil rights stuff uh, both ways. I think uh, you know, I think Jimmy Carter was a vastly misunderstood president. Um, you know, These days he would be a Republican. He was a, he was a fiscal conservative, um, you know, wanting to eliminate spending and uh, – uh, and everything and tightening the belt doesn't always make you very popular and he was voted out uh, i think reagan's you know overrated and i say that as somebody who uh this election is probably going to end up voting republican but um i think reagan's wildly overrated for what he did you know he's great at coordinating uh a compromise but overall as a president a lot of times the, 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 you look at the fiscal policies they weren't sound fiscal policies and um you know clinton uh, a guy i met several times uh I'll say this, no matter what your personal feelings are about Bill Clinton, when you get in the room with the guy, he's your friend. It, it's really funny how it, he, he he just – you become his friend. You know, you leave the room feeling like you're his buddy. And it's, it's an interesting guy. Um, you know, I, I had uh, uh, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting uh, four or five guys that, that have either been president or gone on to become president, and uh, he's one that's just the most interesting. It's, it's being in the room with that guy is different. He's – Kind of like uh, what people say about Tom Cruise. He just fits in anywhere or whatever, you know, without the, the weirdo Scientology stuff. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, that's one of those things. He just fits in anywhere. And so uh, regardless of how you feel about his policies, he's a guy that's, you know, that's just interesting to be around. Very intelligent man. So, so smart. I was surprised, though, the one founding father you didn't mention, maybe forgotten a little bit too often, Alexander Hamilton is somebody <laughs> who I definitely look up to a lot because he – was responsible, and he fought his way up from nothing and made his voice heard and was uncompromising in his policies. And you see that, compare him to, like, Aaron Burr, who was willing to do what had to be done for what was expedient, and it's kind of nice to have someone who is uncompromising, although a little bit of compromise, I guess, would have been nice, especially looking at this Congress where no one compromises. Anyway... Moving on from the society segment, this was a great talk. I really appreciated all your honesty and conversation there. We're going to go to the stuff portion, and this will be pretty brief. The big thing with you is that you are one of the most polarizing figures on Twitter. I know people who swear by you. I know people who really, really openly can't stand you. So... I guess over time, how did you develop your Twitter persona into what you are now? Um, it's uh, well, it's a, it's a, 
I guess it's a long story. I'll try to condense it as best I can. Uh, it's, it's been more than just a Twitter thing. Like it's an online persona. It's a, it's a character or persona that I've developed for quite a while. And it was uh, back in college, and I was getting ready to, and then ultimately turned down Harvard Law um, that I was getting ready for. I, you know, it's something I developed in, in debate uh, on debate teams. Um, you know, it's uh, breaking, doing every logical fallacy in the book, uh, but working in ways to get under people's skin to get a desired reaction. You know, um, there are people that debate formulaically and use all of the logic rules to do it, and, and I can do that. But I found that I had uh, an interest in being the showman at times. And uh, for a kid who grew up introverted and gradually, you know, became extroverted, that's that's how that happened. That's how that uh, I, I came from being an introverted person to being an extroverted. Was I learned how to argue. Um, and I had a flair for it. I had a flair for finding uh, the spot that irritated people when doing it. And so when I developed this Twitter persona, I, you know, when I first started Twitter, it was just to be an interactive type deal. But as it started to take off and kind of become something, um, you know, I recognized that I needed to, uh, you know, I hate the term, but I needed to brand it. You know, I needed to put some kind of brand on it to make it stand out amongst the, the you know, the sea of millions of people on Twitter. So uh, I, I really began to adopt that. Uh, strong position, argumentative persona again. Now I don't, I don't say things that I don't believe to be true, but I will tweak things or frame things in a certain way because I know they'll be irritating to certain people um, because it will elicit a reaction out of them. Um, so you know, I have to be very careful because it's one of those things that I, I kind of prided myself on. I built the Twitter thing on. Uh, uh, um, I don't want to say ball busting, but kind of a little bit doing that and, and holding people accountable and finding people that were not telling the whole truth. And I don't want to ever, um, you know, live long enough to see myself become that which I railed against. But at the same time, I tried to adopt something that would allow me to stand out. And uh, like I said, it's it's something that uh, even the tweets that may seem off the cuff from me usually are carefully crafted in their wording on, per, you know, the wording is crafted a certain way to elicit a reaction um, while maintaining the integrity, um, uh, the integrity of the message. And you have crafted your messages at quite a few nemeses on Twitter in your day. I remember the incarcerated Bob incident in 2011 where you sort of <laughs> exposed him. I remember even now with all the Rams fans, there are always Rams fans in your mentions. Every single minute, I see angry Rams fans about how I don't. You said they were moving the stadium, and now they might not, or whatnot, or some sort of stuff there. And then I'm sure you have other battles as well that you've been fighting. Who would you say is the most entertaining person or persons to have sparred against? Uh, I would say, honestly, that the most entertaining back-and-forth exchange I ever had was with uh, Bart Hubbock. Um, at the time, I think it was about three or four years ago, he reported that uh, you know he talked to Goodell, the Jaguars were a lot to move to London. Um, I had been speaking with Shad Khan's son, uh, you know, by kind of back channel, talking about a few things, and he was like, that guy's off his rocker, you know, we talked back and forth. I mean, you know, the options are always open, but it wasn't going to happen. So I, I went, and this was a widely thing. It wasn't just Hubbock. It was Jason Lockenford, and all these guys were all getting the same leak from Roger Goodell. And my problem with that was, and it's a problem that really is kind of my, my fight, I guess, my, my windmill, if I were Don Quixote, uh, these days would be, you know, 
this this railing against one-sided leaks and not investigating the whole story. If you're going to portray yourself as a journalist, be a journalist and get the whole story. I don't care about balance. Balance is for suckers. Um, you know, if balance is, is ridiculous, get the facts. Uh, the idea of the concept of balance is one that, that, that boggles my mind because uh, say you've got a story on a child predator. Well, it would be balanced to get his perspective, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm probably not going to get a child predator's perspective in a story because that's that's ridiculous. You know, why do I need to hear from Nambla on why, you know, it should be okay? It should. We know it should. It's intrinsic. Um, I, 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 that, that part bothers me. So people don't understand the concept of gathering the whole story versus just seeking balance or seeking opposing comment. And looking at a lot of stories these days, you get one-sided leaks, and you, most of the national media right now is getting one-sided leaks on the Rams-Chargers situation. They're all coming from the Spanos camp. It's all, there's a giant PR machine they have over there working, and they're not getting the whole story. And so that's what I've tried to do with Rams fans. And what I was trying to do with Hubbock was prove a point that, hey, you're getting word of mouth from Goodell, who's attempting to leverage Jacksonville and attempting to leverage other cities by pointing out this London city in an attempt to get certain stadiums or certain other concessions from cities on stadiums and that kind of thing. And so we went back and forth over the course of about two weeks, uh, you know, and he was very obviously intoxicated on Twitter and he just, he just didn't care. And I felt like it really kind of exposed the seedy underbelly of journalists who get to a point in their tenure where they're not going to get fired, so they get complacent, and they kind of mail it in, uh, something you've seen from Woody Page for the last decade, and it, it really um, it really bothered me. So that's probably, and I didn't mean to get that long-winded, I apologize, it, it, that's probably the, the one that most entertained me anyway. You touch on a really, really good point when it comes to getting the whole story. And to preface this, about leaks, it's really obvious when something's been leaked. I remember that there was a day, this was the 2014 draft, where I'm pretty sure 15 people tweeted out that Blake Bortles was going to go to the Cardinals, or they all mocked Blake Bortles to the Cardinals on the same day. And on Twitter, people were like, Blake Bortles to the Cardinals, that's interesting. And someone else was like, yeah, Blake Bortles to the Cardinals. And I was just like... Just say what happened. Somebody told everyone that Blake Bortles might go to the Cardinals. It was probably his agent. And that was exactly what it was. There are cases when it's really obvious where something's been leaked. And I think even with the case that just happened, the Odo Beckham and Josh Norman case, we saw the information stagger out. But you have Jaworski and Tynes, probably from the Giants Odell camp, feeling confident, saying he's not going to be suspended. And then he ends up being suspended. We have the issue with the homophobic slurs on the field that were only said from one camp and the other camp didn't say it. So it's just interesting to note how, and I agree with you on this, people aren't looking for the full story if it's a gray area sort of issue. Right. People construct narratives and then they cherry pick information to support that narrative. And that's, that's the wrong way to do it. You should Take all the information and then make your conclusion, not make a conclusion and then seek information to support that conclusion. And it's rampant. It's one of the things that I think is killing Twitter is this, this whole, uh, you know, this whole seeking out things to validate my point of view rather than seeking out the information to create a point of view. Could not have put it any more succinctly. So to end this, I want people to get to know you a little bit better on something completely random that they may not know about you. So what is one totally random thing, not football-related, not Twitter-related, not military-politically-related, one random thing that you're passionate about that people 
might not know. I was going to be an astronaut until uh, it was way past cute for me to say that. Um, <laughs> I, up until I was in my mid-20s, was convinced that I was still going to be on the first mission to Mars. I have a passion for astronomy, physics, space travel, uh, and, and all the elements involved there is, is something that uh, absolutely fascinates me. Um, and uh, it's always been my biggest uh, my greatest hobby and my uh, probably my greatest passion. Uh, given the opportunity to do it, given the opportunity to be on an expedition to Mars, I would drop everything and I would go do it. Did you watch the SpaceX launch? I did. I did. Well, that's really cool. I didn't realize that you had that passion. And now everyone knows, which is why we're doing this podcast, which has now unfortunately come to a close. So thank you so much, Benjamin, for joining me this week and for talking about so many things. And, yeah, just great having you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. we have to do it again sometime. We definitely will. So that is this week's edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. If you have any thoughts, feel free to leave them at me on Twitter. Feel free to download, leave comments. Really want to know how to make this better. I hope you really enjoyed it, and have a great night and a happy holidays.